Welcome to Gospel Tangents, the best source for Mormon history, science, and theology. I'm Rick Bennett. We're continuing our conversation with Dr. Jesse James. This time we're going to talk a little bit about Fowler's stages of faith. We're also going to talk about how the different denominations came about, and is it possible to manipulate the spirit? These are going to be some fun conversations. You won't want to miss it. Check it out. What's going on here is, uh, like, can be understood in this, there's this, uh, there's this theory uh, Max Weber, um, uh, historical, Weber, right? yeah, spelled Weber, yeah, Weber State University, yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah so, people mispronounce that all the time, <laughs> um, so, you know, good old, good old Weber, uh, German, German philosopher, well, sociologist, who, um, proposed this church sect theory, um, and also James Fowler kind of like uh, developed this theory of stages of, of faith development. And um, we should really talk about Fowler's stages. <laughs> okay, yeah. Let's do it. Let's do it. So, uh, um, yeah, so, uh, uh, you know, this, this church sect theory pr- kind of proposes that every denomination uh, starts by kind of breaking off of some established church. Okay, so you've got like. The, the most classic example is like the Catholic Church, right? And, uh, and we say that because churches are institutions that are oftentimes sanctioned by the state, kind of wrapped up in the state. Um, they're very widely approved. Uh, nobody ever, like being a member is not, does not put your, um, like your life in suspicion. It's, you know, it's, it's completely socially acceptable to be part of a church, right? Um, so, uh, every, every denomination kind of starts as a church. And then eventually when things get too regularized, too institutionalized, too controlled, then people start looking at the church and saying like, this isn't doing what I need for my life. I need extraordinary spiritual experiences. I need, ways of connecting with God that can't be regularized, that can't be controlled. And so they kind of break away and they start this new movement. And the new movement starts usually as a sect. A sect is like a little a little body of followers, usually after kind of a charismatic leader who has spiritual gifts and also a likable personality. So a Mauricio Berger, a Denver Snuffer. Yes, yes. Like that. Um, within the Mormon movement you see this you see this kind of happen quite a few times, right? Um, where people kind of break off and they're you know this charismatic personality and if the like most charismatic movements like that, most sects will die out after a comparatively short period of time, a generation two. Once the once the founder, once that leader dies, then the movement usually dissipates. But if they David Koresh. Okay, I'm not familiar with that one. In the French civilians, the big shootout at Waco. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I, mean, I don't know, maybe that movement's still around, but I don't yeah, know. Mostly dies out after the after the founder dies, yeah. yeah. Um so you so Usually, in order to survive past the initial founder, you have to ha- you have to overcome the succession crisis. This harkens back to the Joseph and Brigham thing, you know. Like, uh, if if the initial founder of your sect dies, usually your organization will dissipate. But if you find a way to kind of institutionalize the charisma, the spiritual gifts, into a position of president rather than a person like Joseph Smith, then you end up uh, being able to kind of pass on that charisma, that power, that expectation, respect, and authority into a new person, into a next, you know... A Brigham Young. Yes, into a Brigham Young, right? And so then the movement is able to, to survive, and the longer that movement survives, the longer it lasts. Most of the time these die out, but if you end up being able to pass on the charisma to a new person, then it kind of shifts into a denomination, right? The sect kind of becomes more regularized, more institutionalized, and it becomes 
like a, a more expected, more calmer version of it. So, you know, if it's a break-off branch, it may not eventually become a church uh, because a church is is often really international and really expected and really um, like really has a long history. So the Catholic Church is the best example within Christianity. Some other denominations might have kind of reached church status, but most of them are just remain kind of denominations. But eventually, like like people will break off from these denominations and kind of become sects again, right? And so uh, as you know, as uh, each uh, kind of as as I mean, you just see this pattern happen over and over again, and you know it happened with the founding of our church. It's happened multiple times, like you mentioned, since. Yeah, with, I mean James Strain. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we can we can talk about lots of this. Yeah, lots of these examples, um, but then if we hearken to Fowler for a second, we, Fowler proposed basically I think six stages of faith development. Most, like, several of which happen in childhood. They're kind of like very intuitive, childish ways of viewing God and kind of an anthropomorphic version of, you know, like an embodied person and uh, and somebody who's kind of constrained by those bodily movements and the way that you might understand a physical father, you might understand God, you know. Um, but eventually, most people of most religions, as they get older, they will kind of shift into stage three, four, five faith. And these stages of faith... Can you give us a brief outline of what those different Fowler stages are? Yeah, so... Even if you have to Google it? Yeah, yeah, so... Um, yeah, so... Uh, so during childhood, there's, uh, like, a primal faith that is, um, uh, like, kind of just this intuitive sense of trust or mistrust about the world. Like, if your parents take really good care of you, then you kind of just develop a faith that the world is a good place to be. And if your parents neglect you or you, you know, don't attend to you when you cry, then you kind of develop a distrust about the world and it kind of it transcends to not just the world, but kind of any kind of deity. It kind of carries forward in your sense of, of divineness in the world uh, or, in the, you know, in the ether uh, as you get older. Okay. Then in stage one, that's that's kind of like pre-faith. Pre he calls it stage zero, right? Then stage one is in young childhood. There's this intuitive projective faith where kids are kind of like... Uh, wrapping up their faith into parables and fairy tales. So everything is like, like the Old Testament is really great for this kind of stage of faith where you're telling stories about Daniel in the lion's den and, you know, miracles happen and, you know, it feels undifferentiated from think from myths like Santa Claus and from fairy tales like Goldilocks and the Three Bears, you know. These kids are wrapping up all these stories in their mind, learning the morals of their society from the religious morals as well as, you know, more secular stories, but of the same quality, you know. Right, Noah's Ark. Um, yeah, exactly. Yeah, those kinds of things. And you see most of the children's books that get published about religion are about things like Noah's Ark and like Moses parting the sea. These really dramatic kinds of experiences that, you know, that as you get older, you may start to interpret in more figurative ways. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but during that period of childhood, you're, you're, you know, just, you're really, you're really buying into the whole Goldilocks and the Three Bears, you know, you're really buying into Noah, you know. Um, then you start to enter, you enter stage two, which is mythical, literal faith. And in this stage, um, uh, kids start to kind of under, they, they start to like, uh, they, they're still hearing these stories, they're still kind of like, Unfortunately, the um, like the the morals are trapped in the story, so you can't like like in order to um, in order to like know what's right or wrong, you have to like remember a story that teaches you what's right and wrong because you can't take you can't extrapolate like the the moral of the good from the story yet. Um, but but what's new about this stage is that um, God stops being an abstract 
Like, this is when you start to develop the idea of an anthropomorphic god. He's like an embodied being. He's like a guy in the clouds with a beard, you know? Um, and this is different from, you know, the previous stages of faith. Like, young children kind of have an abstract notion of God. They, they perhaps haven't even put any kind of image to him at all. Uh, but, you know, when kids are, you know, maybe five, six years old, they start to kind of anthropomorphize him, start to embody him. And uh, then the, the synthetic conventional faith, stage three, where... Um, people are start to um, kind of go through adolescence and uh, start to reflect back on the stories of their childhood. And they start to wonder, like, do I really believe these things in a literal way, in a figurative way? Do I believe them at all? Did the flood really cover the whole yes, earth? Yes, these kinds of things. And uh, and we know that teenage, you know, teenage, teenagers of every denomination, but especially, you know, within the Latter-day Saint movement, are kind of trying to get their own testimony and trying to figure out, like, what do I believe, you know? And so they're reflecting on all the things that they learned before, and they're kind of, you know, kind of figuring out their own political ideology at the same time, and they're kind of, like, sussing out their whole worldview, and they're trying to fit religion within this worldview, okay? And during this stage three faith, this is called synthetic conventional because it basically is, uh, eat, like, most people will come out of this stage of faith with a way of kind of, they, they pull together, they synthesize all the beliefs of people around them in their denomination into, like, their own belief. So what do other, what do I believe? What everybody else believes. Synthetic conventional. What do I believe? Again, what's conventional. So I'm synthesizing the conventions of those around me into a conglomerate that I'm going to adopt. And, uh, like, at, like, like within Mormondom, you know, Sherry Dew just wrote this book a few years ago that was like worth the wrestle. Do you remember that one? Mm. Uh, so I was really excited about this. I was a little disappointed when I actually read it because um, it, <laughs> it was it was kind of like um, uh, she wrote this book and, it, and she was saying in this book like I, I thought it was going to be about like really wrestling over the hard questions and figuring out answers like like you and I try to do. You know, we like really dig deep and think hard about all the complexities of Mormondom. And I, I thought that she was going to be, you know, kind of talking about how it was worth this wrestle to kind of challenge the hard issues, you know, and c confront them and figure them out. And it was really all about it's worth the wrestle to find out the answer to the gospel question, is it true, yes or no? That's it, right? And once you have the yes or no answer, then you're done, right? Like that's like... If you get the answer yes, it's worth the wrestle to get that answer yes, and then push forward in faith, and you've got the only revelation you really need, you know? <laughs> like, that's the answer to the one question. Mm. Um, uh, and so I was a little disappointed, but that is the kind of, uh, of book that you would expect to be written by somebody of a synthetic conventional faith, oh, who okay. has kind of adopted this, this mentality that's like, we believe what everybody in our faith believes. And it is, the reason I bring it this here... This is stage three, right? This is stage three, yes. And the, uh, the reason why I bring it up now when we're talking about um, kind of this, uh, this church sect theory is because it is to the benefit of denominations and churches to keep most of their adherence at stage three. Because if you are at stage three, you are a compliant, easygoing, average, typical, expected member, right? It's easy to lead an expected member who doesn't dig too much, doesn't question too much, doesn't kick against the pricks, doesn't, you know, ask the hard questions, just sits and quietly nods and politely, you know, sings the hymns. And like, that's a really easy kind of member to lead. Right in any religion. In any religion, every religion is. In fact, I should say, most people of most religions end up getting kind of stuck at stage three synthetic conventional faith. Most people just are there. They just believe what people believe around them in the church. 
whatever church they're part of. Uh, and it's to the benefit of churches to kind of keep them there. You don't, like if you're a church leader, you don't really want to push people much beyond that. If people seek out on their own some kind of like reconciliation between science and faith to ask the hard questions, leave it to them, but don't guide them through that process because it's, you don't want them going down that road. Too many of them will end up abandoning their faith, or too many of them will end up deciding that this church isn't the only true church or something, you know? So it's to your benefit to kind of keep them at this conventional place where they're just nodding and accepting, right? But many people go off to college, especially in a developed post-industrial society. They go off to college and they learn these scientific theories and they're learning pluralistic perspectives and they're starting for the first time to enter what he calls stage four faith, in, uh, individuative reflective faith. So people are starting to individually kind of decide what do I believe independent, not of my parents, but independent of my church, independent of everything I've been taught, what do I actually believe? And reflecting on themselves, so individuative reflective faith, where they're trying to figure out, like, how do I reconcile this science and faith, and how do I make sense of the the, the disconnects? Is evolution compatible with creationism? Yes, Those that kind, kind of, of thing, yes. And, and some know, people will say yes, and some people will yes, say no. Yes, exactly, yeah, so some people, you know, will study evolutionary biology, and they'll say, like, okay, in order to make these compatible, I have to either compartmentalize, or I have to, like, interpret the Bible more figuratively, and then kind of, oh, I can see how, like, the the history of evolution kind of matches the history of, you know, the six days of creation in the order in which it occurred. And so I can, oh, I can kind of make sense how this figuratively kind of matches my scientific understanding. And so if I take a less literal interpretation of my religion, then I can make them fit, and that's okay. Or, as is the case in some people, very few, but some people, you might, you know, become very educated and get a PhD and still reject most of what you're learning. You still might adhere very strongly to your synthetic conventional faith. You might come out and say, like, you know what, I think my church is right, independent of the science. I think the science is wrong, my church is right. Even though I've learned, you know, all this, all this fascinating new stuff and it's very compelling, I just think, you know, probably there's holes that we haven't seen in the science yet, okay? So those are basically the only ways of reconciling, you know? You can, you can compartmentalize or you can kind of soften one or soften the other, right? But they are at times in conflict, your religion and your science are or in conflict. Or you throw the whole thing out. Uh, yeah, yeah. If you're going to reconcile them, those are the only ways. Yeah. Right? But some people just adopt only science or only religion, uh, and most people who adopt only religion have not actually, you know, had much training in science. Once you're confronted with science, it's really compelling and very difficult to kind of say, like, oh, I don't believe that, you know. Or you come up with your own science theories and yeah, yeah. build a big ark in Kentucky. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So you know, people take different approaches, right? But most of them are some form of, you know, softening one or softening the other. You know, they soften the science or they soften the religion, right? But this is happening through this stage four faith that usually occurs at the beginning of adulthood when you first left home and you go to college and you're learning these things for the first time and you're kind of getting your footing about your, you know, your real life political ideology. Uh, you know, you're, you're part of your social network, independent from your parents. And I mean, things are really changing in your early 20s. And during that stage four faith, if, especially if you're in a developed country, especially if you go to college, then you're very likely to experience this individuative, reflective kind of faith. And this is where we find faith crises occur in every religion, especially in Mormon religion. I, I should say, especially in any religion that makes a lot of verifiable or falsifiable faith claims. So the more fact-based your religion is, the more likely you are to engage in this 
conflict between science so and So even religion. in Catholicism, for example, we've got uh, Galileo, does the sun go around the earth, does the earth go around the yes, sun? That yes, kind of a and thing. If, your, if your religion says, you know, the earth is the center of the universe, and you find contradictory evidence, then y you have to reconcile that somehow, right? The, the way or that... Or you get excommunicated. Yes, yes. Yes, so you know what you end up, what the church eventually ends up doing is softening their dogmatic stance toward you know the you know the but not in your lifetime model. No, <laughs> almost never in your lifetime, but eventually it always happens. So we see you know there's all kinds of there's all kinds of things where um, you know to like it used to be considered evil to be left-handed. In fact, the the root word of the word sinister is actually related to the the word left-handed, right? Like oh. like this. Like, I think I've heard this before. Yeah, yeah, so, like, like there, there's all kinds of things that are we perceive today as morally neutral that at one point were viewed as negative, you know, evil things, as, as immoral things. I think that's still kind of prevalent in the LDS Church because you're supposed to take your yeah, sacrament with, your right, with your right hand. Yeah, right hand, yeah, exactly. Which, and you, you know, you raise your right hand, you know, yeah. to, to, you know, give sustain a sense people. to your, to, yeah, to sustain yeah. people and, you know, give comments to consent and things like that. Yeah, so there's, uh, you know, a little bit of that, kind of the residuals of that, right, kind of persist. But, yeah. you know, it's like if you use your left hand, nobody's going to get on your case about it, you know, probably. Most likely, you know, and like if you lose your right, it depends hand, you on how stage three you are. <laughs> yeah, so um, so there's things like this, you know. Other things are, you know, like interracial marriage was perceived for a long time as immoral, as something that was oh, against know. the nature of God. So you know, if blacks and whites married, then that's you know that's the kind of thing that uh, that that would you know in Brigham's day would justify blood atonement. In other words, right. you had to you had to kill yourself in order to atone for the fact that you married somebody of a of another race. Um, uh, but eventually we you know we see across all these kinds of examples we see that the now church we have eventually apostles which is yeah 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 it's so yeah it's so great to see the changes you know as as you know as people progress through their understanding of what what god really does care about and what he doesn't care about and sometimes we think he cares about things that it turns out a generation later we realize probably doesn't you know right. probably doesn't care if we're you know using our left hand for something or if we're left hand dominant you know um probably he doesn't care that much if we marry somebody of another race you know mm -hmm. um and we may find you know within the next 30 years or so that, you know, maybe he doesn't care that much if we marry somebody of the same sex, you know, it's, you know, we just, we don't know the, the, the answer to these kinds of things because it usually takes a few generations before the church, any church, will kind of soften their stance enough to step back and look at an issue and say, maybe God doesn't actually care about this as well, much as we thought he did. the community of Christ is right there, right yeah, now. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so, you know, starting about the 80s, they're like, you know, we've got, you know, we've got these women who, you know, are as righteous as men and are good leaders and maybe we should ordain them to the priesthood and mm -hmm. they prayed about it and they felt good you know and so they they went ahead and you know moved forth ordaining women well and even i'm trying to remember community of christ people forgive me i think isn't it 156 where they allow gay marriage yeah so which that, was just yeah, a few happened, years ago i can't remember 2013 or something yeah. like that where um where they you know they allowed for uh for uh, gay marriages to be sanctioned by the church to happen in the church um uh, I hope it's 156. That's what I think. Yeah, it is. yeah. And so, um, 
Uh, I understand why Community of Christ people get our revelations mixed up because I, I get those mixed up too. <laughs> yeah, it's hard to keep track, especially when you've got your own number system. Exactly. That, you know, it's kind of conflicting with theirs. Yeah, because um, yeah, their revelation numbers might be different than yours. I'm always <laughs> impressed when any Community of Christ says, and then section whatever of the LDS Doctrine and Covenants, I'm like, dang, you're good. I know, I'm not, I'm not that good at our own Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah, but you know, you see that over generations, the kinds of things that people care about, that the kinds of things that they view as moral or immoral often soften, they often change over time. Mm -hmm. And so, um, uh, you know, you've got individuals who are kind of, um, you know, in this stage for reflective faith who are seeking God's will independent of their church. And they're saying, like, when I pray about this, I feel like, you know, before the priesthood ban was lifted, you've got individual members praying and, and they're, you know, they're feeling like, God doesn't want this priesthood ban. Like, mm -hmm. God doesn't care about race like the church seems to care about race, you know? And it might be, you know, a decade or two or three or four before, you know, the, the priesthood ban is actually lifted, that people are independently kind of feeling this, right. uh, this you know, this revelation from God that's antithetical to what the church is teaching, but it's only in this stage four faith of individuative, reflective kind of faith that people are able to ask the questions that differ from the institution that they're part of. So this stage of faith kind of gives rise to faith crises. You know, it's, it's a mature kind of faith that asks the hard questions, even if the church has already supposedly come up with the correct answer. You mm -hmm. know? So in Fowler's model, then you come across stage five faith, which is the, the, the six stages, okay? But okay. five is the last stage that most people are able to achieve. After this kind of really rough stage in early adulthood of, that might last to your mid-30s, you know? It might 40s, last your whole lifetime. It might, might last your whole life, uh, where you're kind of really wrestling with the hard questions and feeling like, I don't, I can't figure out the reconciliation between science and faith, and I'm kind of remaining tentative about these things because the answers aren't coming and I can't figure it out. If you manage to make it past stage four, stage five faith might come in your 40s, 50s, 60s, where you kind of realize, I've asked the hard questions, and I've come to peace with a lot of these things, not because I put it on the shelf, but because I have reconciled it. I've figured out how to make sense of both science and faith. I've figured out how to make sense of conflict between my personal beliefs and my institution's beliefs. Things like that are reflective of what he calls a conjunctive faith. Conjunctive kind of meaning like a combined faith between my own individual faith and my institution's faith, right? So people with a really mature, developed, wrestled out faith will come out the other side if they if they keep wrestling if they you know if they are able to reconcile they'll come out the other side more at peace more committed perhaps more tentative more pluralistic than they would have been if they only stayed in stage 3 faith mm -hmm. but at the end of it you will have a better more healthy kind of faith, more psychologically healing kind of faith, more pluralistic for the world kind of faith, than if you never wrestled in stage four in the first place. So it's to the benefit of institutions to keep most people in stage three. It's to the benefit of individuals to wrestle through stage four and come out in stage five conjunctive faith. But if we kind of recast these faith crises that we see in the LDS church as natural developments within the, you know, Fowler's stages of, of faith development and maturation, then we can stop demonizing them like that's, you know, a terrible thing to ask these hard questions and kind of make way for people to, you know, reconcile things on their own.
I don't know that there's a lot that the church institution can actually do to kind of support that process. I mean, they've tried to kind of be more open about their own history, more transparent. Writing Saints was, you know, a good step along the way, Gospel Topics essays and things like that. But a lot of people will say, I want to hear about this stuff in my everyday Sunday school class. You're not going to have stage three conjunctive faith for most people if you start addressing the hard issues in class. An example is like the Unitarian Church, Unitarian Universalists wrestle with the hard questions all the time. They ask all the existential crap. They're, in fact, they're one of the only denominations that really do, like that, that make it part of their everyday practice to really wrestle with the hard stuff. Okay. Does Community of Christ, do you know? Um, it seems like they do better. Yeah, so when I, yeah, so, uh, yeah, when I, so when I attend the Community of Christ uh, church, I have found that, um, uh, that that sometimes the the meetings will incorporate like a, a you know some science and some religion kind of in the same meeting. It's like it's everything I ever hoped. For I mean, in a especially meeting. John Hamer. I don't know if mm -hmm. you ever watch his. Oh online. yeah, yeah. He's got a Wednesday night thing that's fabulous. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I love those. And but also his you know the Sunday Sunday meetings are really really uplifting. Yeah, but. Um, yeah, in the Community of Christ Church, it depends, you know, they're, they're more denominationally, uh, sorry, I mean congregationally led, so, like, what's true of one congregation yeah, won't necessarily be the, tr the same in another <laughs> congregation. So, John Hamer's congregation is, you know, of course, way more, uh, uh, you know, conjunctive five-stage faith, you know, kind of, kind of encouraging all of his people to get there. Um, wrestling with the hard issues and really approaching them openly. But not every uh, congregation of Community Christ will be that way. And I don't know, I I, I want to say this, be, and I don't, I don't mean to offend, but it seems like, especially when we look at uh, restoration branches, of which, especially in Independence, there are a lot, uh -huh. they, a lot of the break-off RLDS uh -huh. congregations are very much more stage three. Uh -huh. Old style RLDS. Yes, yes. Okay, so this this leads me to I, we. Okay, we keep. This, it's so good that your thing is called gospel tangents because this is just another tangent of like this is the whole conversation has been just tangent after tangent. But um, uh, but like you have said on your podcast before several times that it's like hard to understand like what like what is evangelicism right and yes. you, you don't like them like it's you know they're they're, they're nasty I people like sometimes some, I yeah. like the nice ones yeah exactly right but it's hard to come across a nice evangelical. Well, Here's what's going on. So, in the um, uh, evangelicism came about like in the. I just looked this up the other day and I can't remember exactly when, but I think it was the late 1700s. Yeah. Um, well, there's kind of two types of evangelicalism. I have another um, interview with a Lutheran pastor. Oh, interesting. And um, it will be published by the time I do this, but, but it hasn't been published yet. And he talks a little bit about the old-style evangelicalism versus the new evangelicalism, mm. which is yeah. more charisma, charismatic-based and that sort yes, of thing. Yes, yes. And I believe, if I remember right, he's old-style evangelical Lutheran, uh, not new-style yes, evangelical yes, Lutheranism. Yes. But anyway, tell us okay, the difference. Okay, so, yeah, so this is, so, okay, so, like, if you ever look at the Pew Research uh, on religion, you'll see that whenever they categorize people into religions, they, you know, start with Catholic, Protestant, but they'll split out Protestant into two primary groups. They'll say uh, mainline Protestant and evangelical Protestant, okay? And those two groups are, really reflect the, like, the, the uh, like, mainline Protestants are kind of, uh, like the, the they're called mainline because they're the traditional path that continued along a particular trajectory, 
of becoming more progressive over time, okay? So, uh, like, more figurative in their interpretations of scriptures, less dogmatic, less fundamentalistic, more reconciling science with faith, more open, right? So, over time, Protestant denominations, all of them, Methodist, Lutheran, Presbyterian, Baptist, all have gradually become more progressive than they used to be, okay? This is not unexpected because church sect theory suggests that over time all denominations are going to find better ways of becoming more like churches, which are expected, reconciled with society, uh, you know, no longer meeting the real spiritual needs of people, but really integrated with, you know, with science and faith and in society. So you're leaving behind some of the more fundamentalist ideas about left-handedness being evil and, you know, interracial marriage being evil and things like that, right? Uh, well, and I think there are still some churches, just to interrupt for a second, that are still struggling with these issues. Mm -hmm. And the two of them that pop into my head are, are uh, Episcopals, because they're still trying to decide if gay clergy are okay mm -hmm. or not, and mm -hmm. some are saying yes, and mm -hmm. some are saying mm -hmm. no, as well as um, Lutherans to some extent and Methodists. Mm -hmm. There's like a big schism going on yeah, with Methodism right now. But anyway, sorry, go yeah, ahead. So, um, uh, though what you're describing is uh, mostly over ordination of gay members, right? right? Gay, gay clergy, gay right. members, things like that. Yeah, sanctioning of marriages. Yeah, so mostly the the schisms are happening today over the issue of uh, of same sex attraction, right. rather than, for instance, like uh, like interracial marriage, for instance. That kind of was settled back, you know, in the, maybe the '60s or so, right? right. Like most almost. Yeah, there wasn't a lot of schisms. I mean, a little bit. I mean, there's still some fundamentals, like the Bob Jones University yeah, people yep, and, yep. and that, but yeah, but most denominations kind of weathered that without schism, right? right? Yeah. Um, okay, so mainline mainline Protestants are those that kind of continued along this path of progressivism that kind of integrated science and religion and became more like more open in their interpretations and less literal, okay? Within any of those groups, at various times, there have been movements of people who've kind of broken off from that denomination and become a sect. And those sects have ended up being evangelical sects. Almost every break-off sect is more evangelical. I should say, I should for momentarily, I should use the word conservative. More conservative than the progressive, progressive main line. Okay. Now, are you talking so, about the 1700s version or the 1900s? Yeah. So right version? now, I'm talking about like 1700s. Okay. okay. So like in like 1700s, you've got all these break-off groups. Though I should say, like even today, when we see break-off groups, they're almost always more conservative. Okay? Right. The point is always to get back to the original, back to the original founding church, back to the original interpretation of scriptures, back to the original practices, back to the original ordinances. Back Every, to the conservative version. Yes, yes, right. So it's but but they but they're not they're not wording wording in that way. But they perceive that. See what conservative means is the old ways conserve means to save conserve to save the old ways right so conservative literally like not in a political sense well though it is political too but in a in a literal sense what we're saying is we want to conserve the old way of doing these things the old standards the old commandments the old interpretations right and so as churches become more liberal more open and shift in their interpretations churches like sex will break off and try to get back to the old ways. Okay, so this is, you can see this in Mormon history as well. Joseph Smith kind of starts this new church trying to bring back, to restore the original version, the old ways, the old interpretations, the old ordinances. Everything's been corrupted, right? Well, every time somebody's broken off of the LDS church, also, we see the same thing. They're always trying to get back to the old ways, the original ways that Joseph established, the ways that, that he was talking, and the, you know, the ordinances and the authority as it originally stood, not Most the corrupted of the time. way. I, there are some progressive breakdowns. Yeah, yes. yeah. So as you see these these people break off, 
we, I, I have been calling them conservatives. They are evangelical. Evangelical is a word that means a more literal interpretation of the Bible. It means practicing things in the old ways of this uh, Protestant movement. Okay, so every 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 denomination has evangelical and mainline versions. So there's evangelical Methodists and mainline Methodists, right? Meaning progressive Methodists, mm -hmm. okay? There's, you know, you could say the same of Lutherans, you could say the same of Presbyterians. Every denomination has more evangelical versions and more progressive versions or more mainline versions. So evangelical, can we can we substitute the word conservative? Yes, yes. Okay. And that and it really is quite accurate to say evangelical and conservative are almost entirely synonymous in terms of this old 1700s mm -hmm. movement, right? Now, recently, evangelical and, and Protestantism have become kind of more synonymous. Not entirely synonymous, right? But, but, um, but evangelicals have kind of taken on... In, in, okay, so if you look at Denver Snuffers movement, you can kind of see similar, similar, like, similar voice to this. You can see that uh, he broke away to become more conservative, but also to give rise to the original spiritual gifts that Joseph was providing for the saints. Speaking in tongues is allowed in Denver's movement, and uh, and visions and manifestations and spiritual, like miraculous spiritual gifts, are allowed and and encouraged in this movement, right? Where they're kind of discouraged or put under the rug in the you know the mainline LDS church, right? right? They're um, okay with Bickerton, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, but you see the same kind of thing where, um, like. You could call Denver's movement evangelical Mormonism, right? Basically, what it is hmm. is a conservative and gift-seeking charismatic movement, right? Okay. So it's not actually that. Like to go back to the original ways is also to go back to the original gifts, the original signs described in Scripture. And so, a lot of times, as churches become more institutionalized, more regulated, and more accepted by society, they lose the gifts, they lose the spiritual manifestations that they had at one point when they were a sect. And as they become more regularized, like they just they just get further from God, kind of. And so See, this, that's what's so sects, weird about yeah. Denver's movement because originally, especially when he was still LDS. Mm -hmm. He was more progressive. He was more open to women being, and 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 actually, well, yeah, more open to women being ordained, uh, more open to even gay marriage. Uh -huh. And then since he got excommunicated and started his own thing, yeah, he's become more conservative. Yeah, yeah. He's still, in a way, I don't know if you know about his priesthood, the way he does it with priesthood. Uh huh. You do know? Yeah. For those of you who don't, uh, seven women have to recommend a man to uh -huh. be ordained. It's still a male priesthood, uh -huh. but but men can't vote. Yes. Only women do. So yes. that's kind of interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah. But and then he's and he, gotten away from polygamy completely, which yeah, is just weird. It's to really me. interesting because yeah, yeah, he's kind of, he's kind of, you know he now says like it never happened under Joseph. Like Brigham started it, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, it depends on what version of fundamentalism, right? But like, if you believe that Joseph never started polygamy, then getting back to the original is to go back to a, a version of Mormonism where polygamy didn't exist, or where if it existed, it was you know it was an apostate version of polygamy or something, right? Denver has some weird things. Okay, originally, like if you go back to blog posts before 2014, you can see that he wrote some stuff about um, about like how, you know, he uses Jacob, the interpretation in Jacob 2, what, 19 or something like that, where, you know, where God says, if I will raise up seed unto myself, then, you know, polygamy is okay. Um, and Denver, originally in his blog, kind of says, like, this is what happened to Joseph. You know, Joseph, 
if everybody had followed polygamy the way the Lord actually originally asked for it to be, then there would never have been a problem. But, you know, we kind of became corrupted and, you know, people uh, got selfish about it and became overly sexualized. And so some, some bad stuff happened, but God intended to raise up some seed because, you know, like we, we needed more, we need more Mormon babies, something like that. Right. Um, that's, that's the gist. Uh, yeah. Sorry, Denver, if you're, <laughs> something like this. Right. And eventually he kind of shifts, right. He shifts, he shifts tone to where he no longer believes that Joseph ever practiced it because right. he himself said he never did. Emma said he never did. And so now Denver will proclaim that, you know, Joseph, never actually practiced polygamy and there might have been polygamy in the early church but you know um it but was all was, you know cochranites and brighamites and you know weird weird people who were like you know out on missions and doing bad stuff that joseph didn't know about or didn't sanction right, right. um so he kind of maybe partially acknowledges that but then there's this odd thing where every once in a while denver will hint around about how like polyg there's actually like a law there's a polygamous law that you can get from God, but you better know your stuff. If you're going to do this, like you better be holier than anybody because it's so easy to become corrupted. So I, I can't tell where, where Denver really lies because on the one hand, he's got some people in his movement who are like, who really believe in polygamy. And he's kind of like giving them a nod. Like he's even had some people in his movement kind of do the spiritual wifery thing, you know, and then get in trouble for it, you know? Um, Which is probably why he's distancing himself from it. Per perhaps so. But he's kind of like nodding at the fact that like, okay, there is actually a true law like that exists in the, in the ether that God has sometimes sanctioned polygamy to occur. It doesn't seem to say like, yes or no, it was Joseph, you know, but like, but if you're gonna if you're gonna do it, it's not spiritual wifery, and you have to be like prophet status before you ever even venture to ask that question. So if you think that you've got sanctioned by God to practice polygamy within my movement, think again, right? So it's something like that, right? So on the one hand, it's so he's so conflicted. It seems like it's almost like he can't tell whether jo like Joseph may have done it, but if he did, he was really sanctioned, and if he and he probably didn't, you know? Like, it's like I don't know, Denver, whatever. <laughs> Huh. I, that's a nuance I wasn't familiar yeah, with. But. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that sorry, that was so a I'm big long tangent there. Let's go back to the old-style evangelicals, yes, conservative. Yes, um, so we, we these people, are, so people break stuff. off, and they become... So every time these evangelical movements break off, they're both more conservative than the mainline progressives, and they're also more sign-seeking. So this is the reason why today you can say an evangelical is kind of synonymous in some ways with... Um, with Pentecostals, because many evangelicals are, <laughs> what are they doing? They're, um, they're, you know, they're, they're speaking in tongues and they're, mm -hmm. you know, jumping up and down and swaying in the, you know, in the pews and, uh, and might fall down at the altar, you know, up front and things Very like that. Very enthusiastic. Right? Yes. It's a, yeah. Which is what the, the Methodists back in Joseph Smith's day used mm -hmm. to do the same sorts of things. Yes. But again, what we see with the Methodists is the same way we see with everybody. We see this gradual progressivism entering the church where people become more mellow, less sign seeking, more like more liberal in their interpretation of scripture, right? So you just, you have a calming of every church over time. Always happens. It's and that so church Methodist sect theory. churches are just as boring as LDS churches, Yes, today right? if, you go to a, if you go to a Methodist church, it's so interesting because like at the time of Joseph, both Joseph's church, which, you know, he was most familiar, I think, with Methodism at the time when he started the right. LDS church, and also Methodists were really pretty dramatic places to be. Right. And over time, we both mellowed out in the same ways, but it's not... 
Like, if you go to a Methodist church today, it looks very similar to the LDS church. Right. But honestly, if you go to any church today, it looks almost exactly like the, like the LDS church, even, right? Unless it's modern Yes, evangelical. exactly. If you go to like, a Pentecostal or evangelical, and, yes, then, yeah. you, then you've got a more enthusiastic worship style, right? But, um, but like, if you go to a Lutheran church, if you go to a Methodist church, if you go to a, um, a Baptist church, almost all of them feel completely undifferentiated from an LDS church, the things you hear in a typical Sunday meeting, the things you hear in a typical Sunday school class, I mean, I've been to dozens of churches, and every time it's like, this feels exactly the same as our church. Like, exactly. It's all the same. And this is the reason why among Christians generally, so if you look at, like, Christian denominations, what differentiated people, honestly, like, the, Luther broke off. Have you ever read the 95 Theses that Luther wrote and nailed I've to the door? I've not read them. I, I read bad. them once thinking, I was, I, was, I was like, you know what? I always knew that Luther was concerned about indulgences, right. like the sale of indulgences. But I wonder what his other 94 problems were, right? So I went <laughs> and I read the 95 Theses, and they were all about indulgences. <laughs> oh, really? It was like 95 nuanced ways of decrying indulgences as bad, right? Oh, wow. So it was so fascinating. I was like... There's got to be some it's grace in there and works. Really not. So this, no, it, really? it's mostly not. It was almost all about indulgences. And I was like, so this is like, the Lutheran church is really basically the Catholic church, but don't do that, right? Yeah. And that's really how it is. And then, you know, later on you've got the, the Baptist breakoff. First the Anabaptists, right? And Anabaptists are today what we would call, they're, they're kind of like the forefathers of uh, of the... Uh, of the Amish and the Mennonite uh, churches, right? Oh. But eventually Baptists come out of the Anabaptists as well. Okay, so Anabaptists are also Germans. They break off of the Lutherans. And the reason why they do that is because the Lutherans broke off and decried indulgences, but they were still performing infant baptism and baptism by sprinkling. And Baptists were like, no, it needs to be by immersion. It needs to be of somebody of age to be able to decide for themselves. Well, you know what's so amazing? Have you ever seen an Orthodox church infant baptism where they dunk the, the kid <laughs> And I'm just like, holy cow! I have not that seen child that. abuse. No, no, because when chi so children have reflexes built in that go disappear after like the first two months of life. But while they're but up until they're like two months old, they have lots of reflexes that allow them to survive. And one of them is like a swimming reflex. One of them is a breath holding reflex. Like if you put an infant in water, they will like flap their arms in a swimming motion. It looks motion. awful though. Yeah. Like I've seen them. You oh, can I'm see sure some on YouTube sure. where they take a baby <laughs> and dunk them onto the water three times. And it's just like, oh my gosh, are you kidding me? Oh, I hate to laugh at other people's beliefs. It's, I'm sorry. I'm uh, sorry. It's, it's wild. But, um, yeah. but that goes back to really, because I'm curious, when did the Catholics start sprinkling? Because the Orthodox still dunk. Uh, and do infant baptism. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So the the Orthodox, the Great Schism was in like a thousand eighty, yeah. right? And so the Catholics started sprinkling at some point after that, right? Okay. Yeah. I don't remember when. So, but, the, so they used to dunk too. It sounds. Yeah. Like, yeah. Probably. So, yeah. Originally, you know, like again, this is the whole thing. I like, should you say always immerse, are trying to go back to yeah, dunk. you immerse. Yeah. You you always are trying to go back to the original, right? So the Catholics corrupt something, you know, they start doing sprinkling baptisms, and somebody breaks off to try and get back the original, right? That's the evangelical movement. That's the break off schisms, uh -huh. right? So you've got Luther breaking off, and then you've got the Baptists breaking off of them, and then you've got the Presbyterians breaking off, and their main concern was authority isn't actually authority for the congregation should not be held at the what we would call the stake president level in the catholic church it's called the bishop level a bishop is over multiple congregations and a priest is over each congregation so what we call a stake president and a bishop they would call a bishop and a priest 
Okay. Yeah. Um, but they they would say like in the Catholic Church for the longest time, like before the Great Schism, you don't have a, a popely authority. All the authority is held in the bishop, and each individual congregation has yeah. Because well, they used to have authority. a patriarch, right? The patriarch was over the bishops, and then the popes. Pope said, "I'm head patriarch," and oh, the one in, in in Istanbul, no, it's Constantinople. No, anyway, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> was like, no, we're all equal. So you've got the Russian Orthodox and the Eastern Orthodox and the uh -huh, Greek Orthodox, uh -huh. and yeah, they, I still yeah. haven't figured out why they don't have an American Orthodox fight. Uh, yeah, I mean, they should. <laughs> you know, um, the, the the I think with this whole thing going on with Ukraine and Russia, they're talking about. Ukraine breaking off from the Russian Orthodox Church. Oh, interesting. And, yeah. But, but yeah, but basically, the way I understand it is they had patriarchs, and the Pope was like, no, I'm head patriarch, and everybody yeah. was like, no, forget yeah. you. Yeah. And then the schism happened, and yep. anyway. Yep. So, so at, I mean, at some point, I mean, you, even when you have the Pope, you've still got a lot of independent decision-making authority empowered within the bishops, a lot, right? So bishops, and especially archbishops who are over multiple bishops, right? So you've got, you know, you've got an archbishop who is like who's like still a bishop and he still has his own section of, you know, many congregations, parishes and many priests, right? But you've also got an archbishop over many bishops, which we would call in the Mormon church an area authority, right? Okay. So the archbishop, except that if an area authority served as stake president at the same time he was an area authority and he was like the head stake president over a region, that's what it would be to be an archbishop, okay? Okay. So an archbishop is basically like telling other bishops kind of what to do, but still each individual bishop still has a lot of authority over their over their diocese, okay? Well, Presbyterians come along and they're like, mm, we don't like that the stake president has authority, we want the ward bishop to have authority. In other words, the pastor to have authority. And so the presbytery actually is, like the, the word presbytery refers to the local leadership in your ward or in your congregation, right? So Presbyterians are people who believe that the local congregation should be in charge of themselves rather than some stakely authority, some bishop authority being, in the Catholic terminology, bishop authority being in charge of multiple parishes, right? So the Presbyterians come along and they start this new movement over one tiny little issue. It's just basically who has authority. We want, we want our local congregation to have authority, right? So they separate from can't remember if it's Anabaptists or Lutherans. Anyway, they separate from some, from some, you know, they make some schismatic movement. Then you've got the, uh, and uh, that's around the same time as John Calvin. Like, it, it, you know, Calvinism kind of runs out of the same Presbyterian movement. So you start to see, you know, some themes of uh, foreordination and, you know, some, some really bizarre Christian principles of Calvinism kind of enter the, the Presbyterian church at the same bizarre. time. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. Well, most Christians today kind of denounce Calvinistic principles, right? Most most people don't really believe in foreignation, right? People believe in agency. Oh, see, I swear that's like the big deal. Are you a Calvinist or a non-Calvinist? Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. That's well, maybe what, that's yeah, maybe Steve that's Pinecker the case. Says. Maybe interesting. Yeah. I, mm, fascinating. I I actually personally met anybody who would who'd said they were a Calvinist, but huh. at least you know maybe I haven't asked the right questions. I don't know. <laughs> um, uh, but you know, of course, then you've then you've got the um, the Henry VIII movement, where they you know break off from the Catholic Church and become the, you know, the Anglican, and, and in America the Episcopalian Church, which is the exact same thing, just by a different name. And you know, but we couldn't do that because of the Revolutionary War. You, it was bad 
Oh. Because we, we, we couldn't be called Anglican yeah, because that yeah. was too much England. Yeah, and, yeah. yeah so they changed it to Episcopal. <laughs> fascinating. I didn't realize that. Yeah. That's really fascinating. So, you know, we end up with the Episcopal Church, which is basically, again, it's basically the Catholic Church decrying the Pope, you know, and just like, we don't we don't want the Pope authority, right? right. So we're, we're going to break up and be our own version of the Catholic Church, which is exactly the same. But, you know, yeah. like, whether you use, like, fermented wine for the sacrament or not you know the, the the kinds of things that that differentiate these different movements are minuscule just tiny little differences like at what age do you be baptized or you know at, you know who has authority the, the state president okay or the bishop or right you know exactly you, yeah exactly all these kinds of things um just tiny little things and so today you've got this christianity within the united states that's bifurcated into literally hundreds of different denominations there i mean i should say congregations because we've got this semi-church movement where like a lot of people are like uh, like loosely affiliated churches you know you've got like 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 a calvary baptist church might have like it might be like a mcdonald's version of a church where they have like 10 affiliated branches and they're yeah. like all overseen by the same body the same oversight body you know mm. they might be across two states or something but you know they're they're just a baptist church right and they might differ in one small way from other baptists but maybe not even you know so it's it's hard to know where to draw the boundaries like you know do you just do you i mean the the major boundaries are uh, you know, Lutheranism, uh, uh, Baptists, uh, Presbyterians, uh, Anglican, Episcopal, and um, and uh, and the Methodists. Methodists broke off of the Anglicans. John Wesley just was like, again, this conservative idea of like, we're we're not like we're not doing things as strictly as we should be we need to improve our methods that's literally where the word comes from it's methodist because like we need to do better at our methods like being more particular more pharisaical about stuff you know like we just need to do better you know at all this stuff. so it's like breaking off but not to start a new church just because he wanted to do anglican anglicanism better than yeah. you know than other anglicans right he just wanted to be more assiduous about it uh, and so it starts this new, you know, this new church, but it's really just the Anglican church. The differences between the Methodists and the Anglicans are so, just so minute, tiny little things, you know? So you've got this completely bifurcated Christianity that's essentially one Christianity. One congregation might, you know, believe in the authority is one level up or one level down. You get baptized a little earlier, a little later. You get baptized by sprinkling or baptism. You use wine for the sacrament. We use grape juice. All these things are such minor differences, but the Christianity that we're all adhering to is essentially the same. Oh, and the other, the other big difference is whether you believe in spiritual gifts or not, whether you allow them to occur in your congregation. So you've got, you know, more, more evangelical or Pentecostal kinds of beliefs where, you know, we, we're sign-seeking, or you've got more main, mainline movements that aren't, right? And that's, I mean, that's it. Those are, the, those are the big issues that divide all of us. And more and more, as Latter-day Saints kind of distance themselves from, like, we hear President Hinckley, you know, kind of in, uh, in interviews with Larry King saying, you know, uh, well, we don't really emphasize that. We don't talk about, you know, the, you know Whether God being God. like, yeah, you yeah. know, be becoming like God and stuff like that. Um, you know, we distance ourselves from some of the traditional beliefs and practices that made us uniquely Mormon. It used to be that being Mormon 
it was like we were a peculiar people, and it was a point of pride. We were like uniquely different. Right? We have polygamy. Yeah. <laughs> there was a time when we were really proud of that, right? Yeah. But then we also were proud of, you know, like, we've always been proud. We have the authority. We have the true authority, right. right? We also have, you know, interesting revelations. We have the Pearl of Great Price and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Book of Mormon, and we have, you know, prophetic. We have prophetic revelation, ongoing revelation. We have these things that make us unique. And the longer we go. Uh, the more the more mainline we become, the more accepted we're trying to be in broader right. culture, and so we end up kind of losing a lot of what makes us unique. I I even if we implicitly still believe it, if it still appears in some manual mm -hmm. somewhere, we don't emphasize it anymore. We so start this, emphasizing grace more. Yes, this, so, exactly. Yeah, we see that in the '90s, you know, yeah. and especially Stephen Robinson, you know, writes this book, Believing Christ, and right. you know, in you, in you, in you know, he's kind of he gets some flack for it, you know, and then eventually it becomes mainstream doctrine, you know, but, uh, but I guess, uh, uh, my point was like, even to attend a Latter-day Saint congregation, it's, it's almost exactly the same as any other church. You attend any church and it's just, it just is, you know, it's just the LDS church, the Lutherans, the Methodists, the Presbyterians, every church just feels exactly the same. We're just repeating the same schism between the Orthodox and the Catholics. Yes, yes. You know, it's just, yeah, ago. we've just been doing it over and over again. But it's not unique to Christianity. Every denomination, every, every, every of the five major world religions, or six, depending on how you count, uh, major world religions, Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Catholicism, or, sorry, um, uh, Christianity, Christian. and, uh, uh, Islam. Islam, thank you. Um, uh, uh, and some some people there's a there's a there's actually more people who practice uh, uh, up, in the, up in the northwest corner of India there's the there's a practice of it starts with a J Jainism Jainism yeah I think um, uh, or or Sikhism is Sikhism that the same? is yeah. the yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so more people who are actually Sikhs than are um, Jews, but because they've been so isolated uh, culturally and geographically for so long, we don't really consider them a major world religion. They haven't proliferated across the geography of the world. So, hmm. um, I mean, it depends on how you count. You know, whether that's a sixth or not major world religion. But well, you always wonder about Confucianism and Taoism and those. Yeah, sorts so that's yeah. So interestingly, Confucianism, Confucianism and Taoism kind of come out of the same they come out of buddhism they're like but they're more philosophies than religions and so and like, like the yoga. chinese folk religion ends up being like an amalgamation of confucianism and taoism uh and and it's kind of sanctioned kind of by by um the chinese government but only because it's really more of a philosophy than it is a religion really you know it's mm. it's 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 like, you know, golden rule kind of stuff, you know, it's not a lot of, like, it doesn't speak to the issue of whether God exists, and neither does Buddhism, actually, I don't know if, most people don't know that, but, like, like you believe in reincarnation, Buddhists believe in reincarnation, and there's multiple lives, your eventual end goal is to cease the cycle of the wheel of time, cease the, the cycle of endless births, and you do that not by becoming some exalted being or, you know, living in heaven, but you do this by ceasing to exist. Your end, your ultimate goal is to poof out of existence, if you're a Buddhist. Hmm. Um, and you, you do this only when you kind of arrive at a state of peace about everything. Like, if you are no longer troubled by death and difficulty in your life, and you can, like, be at peace no matter what happens to you, then, like, you know... You're Zen, and you cease to exist, right? Um, 
Uh, and so that's like that's the ultimate goal. But Buddhism, like some people who are Buddhist, believe in a in a higher power, believe in God, and some don't. And Buddhist is agnostic on the issue. Hmm. Um, but anyway, why am I saying this? Um, I'm saying you know across the five major world religions, you see the same kind of schism that you see in Christianity. This is this is a human trait. This is not a Christian trait. You know, but we are all repeating this same differentiation of breaking off over and over again over tiny issues that we see in the Great Schism, you know, over whether there's a Pope or not, you know, like one tiny issue results in a huge break-off. Um, we see the same thing happen across all of Christianity, but we see it also happen across every one of the five major world religions. Just breaking off and breaking off and breaking off over tiny issues. So we're just re reinventing the wheel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Shinto is like the, the major religion in Japan. Right. And, uh, and like, they're hundreds, maybe thousands of uh, different denominations of Shinto in that one tiny little island country. Um, and as you go to like the different denominations, you might see like one of them believes, you know, one of them broke off because, you know, the, the sun worship uh, ceremony should be done with two hands rather than one hand or, you know, so just things like this, right? Tiny little differences that result in a schism breaking off, you know, oh, you know, you're doing your, you're doing your shrine wrong. You're supposed to use, you know, twice as much water or, you know, just weird little things that are just, that don't matter, that shouldn't result in schism, but people are just... They just have a divisive nature. You know, everybody just wants their own way, and nobody wants to compromise, and everybody's just snotty about it. And so, you just over time, you just see schism after schism after schism, and uh, yeah, and I don't, I don't know what you do about it because there's, there's, you know, everybody, people are so loath to compromise that there really is, you know, and and so loath to make space for people, you know, to to have this big tent philosophy, you know, within the Mormon Church, you've, you know, you have some people are like. We should allow anybody in the church who believes in the basic tenets of what Christ says in Third Nephi 11, I think, mm -hmm. where he says, you know, this is my doctrine. It's the only doctrine I'm going to give you. It's the only doctrine that matters. You believe, you repent, you're baptized. You'll receive the Holy Ghost if you do those three things. That's it. That's all my doctrine. And if you believe those things, then you're part of my fold. And if not, then it's fine, but don't let contention be among you, right? Don't argue about it. It's fine if you it's fine if you want to talk about other ancillary things. These are the four things that matter. If you want to talk about anything else, just don't argue, don't have contention about it. But it seems like it's fine to disagree because everything else is ancillary. Everything else is superficial, you know. So I I I mean, it seems like you should be allowed as a like I, I'm of the big big tent Mormon philosophy. You should be able to you should be allowed to believe whatever you want to believe as long as you're with us on the core four things that, that Jesus said. Because <laughs> 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 right now that'll get you axed. Uh, yeah. So I'm trying to think what else I want to say. So um, you know what? It's one thing that we forgot because we kind of, you know, this is what we do is we go off on tangents. But yeah, those, these yeah. are the fun conversations. Yeah. We didn't do stage six. Of oh, Father. yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so stage six is, um, uh, I can't remember what it's called, trans transcendent faith or, uh, let me just look it up again. See, uh, what I understand while you're looking that up is... I'm trying to remember. I think it was Susan Score, who's a former RLDS apostle. Mm -hmm. um, 
I believe she said that there's very few people who ever make it to stage six. That's true, yep. Jesus, Martin Luther faith. King, mm-hmm. um, you know, because usually you get killed when, you, yep. when you're when you at stage yep. six. Yep. So why do you get killed? Yeah, so the whole principle of martyrdom is uh, that when you have universalizing faith, you, um, like you live your life out loud in the particulars of every facet of everything you do, the way you believe God wants you to. And sometimes God asks of you very controversial or demanding things. He asks you to push against the conventions of society to make a better world, right? And so you see that almost every mover and shaker is unaccepted in that time. They are they are viewed as a hostile threat to the status quo, and you know the things they're saying are revolutionary and uh, and you know and dangerous, you know, to the to the again to the status quo. And so you know the examples you gave like. You know, Martin Luther King, Jesus, Joseph Smith. Uh, these, are, these are people who are doing things that society does not like at the time. And eventually, a lot of times, society comes around later and says, you know what, they were right in their time, but we didn't recognize it because we weren't ready. Right? And so, universal people of universalizing faith kind of like have reached a point where they have such a connection with God and such confidence in how they live that out that come what may, whatever the consequences, they will they will do what they know is right. They will fight with every last breath for, you know, for the cause of justice, for the for the causes that God wants them to fight for. And so a lot of times this is viewed as, you know, just really it's really dangerous to establish political bodies. It's dangerous to, you know, establish cultures and and you know, various movements and so uh, a lot of people will just not receive them well. So that's anyway that's universalizing faith and it's like uh, like you said it's uh, Fowler believed it was very rare that hardly anybody actually achieved it and some researchers kind of come along later and said like I'm not even sure it's a really different stage of faith like you know maybe it's you know you, get, you, you might give these examples but if you look at the actual beliefs that these people had sometimes they don't you know they, their beliefs don't look that different it's just that they're you know they, the, the the answers they've come to in this conjunctive faith, the stage five faith. Uh, would Muhammad they, be a stage six? Would you say? Um, I mean, he wasn't really a martyr. Yeah. Um, I I. That's the thing. Like, it's hard to know. Like, like in Fowler's mind, he's he's saying like, you know, these people have kind of worked through all the hard issues. They've come out on the other side. They they have this you know this reconciliation. Do you have to be a faith founder in order to reach universalizing faith? Um, like, for instance, could, you know, like... The, Buddha? Would he be another one? I mean, if you only define the leaders of major religious world movements as universalizing faith, then it becomes uh, it becomes too circular. It becomes... I mean, it's 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 like... It's like if that's the definition and also that's, you know, the examples you give of the definition, then, you know, you can't say, you can't say it's an actual thing. David it's, Koresh? <laughs> <laughs> um, so so I, I, I tend to think if it's a unique thing, like if, it, if it's an actual stage of faith, that it, it has to, like, more people than just, like, movement leaders who who are revolutionaries have to be able to achieve it you know you have to be able to live it out 
for instance, I have a neighbor right here, Lori Long. She's just the, the most wonderful person I think I've ever met. She's, she lives out her whole life in the conviction of the community of Christ faith, trying to serve everybody in her local community. She walks everywhere she goes instead of driving because she, she wants to meet people on the streets and just brighten their day hmm. and accept everyone and love everyone. And she constantly serves them and she serves on every community board, the Lions Club and the Optimist Club. And she, she's everywhere doing everything in town. Everybody knows her, this whole town. Most wonderful person on earth. But if you restrict, like, like she's truly living out her her faith in this kind of universalizing way. Like so she you would really, call her a stage six? I would think if you define it the way Fowler does, then you have to include her, but she's not like the founder of a new religion. She's not a radical. She's not going to end up being killed for her kindness. But like, how do you, like, it's so nebulous how he describes this. He says this is uh, a faith stage characterized by a walking representation of how you view God. It's described as a deepening of the particulars of one's faith until it becomes inclusive of all human beings. So you view all human beings as children of God and equal, equally deserving of your love and, uh, and equally deserving of justice and, and goodness, right? And so you fight all the time, all you can, to make sure that there are no poor among you and that there are no people who are being subjugated and there's no war, right? It's like that's, like, and that's your life. That's what you do. But you have to do it on a big, grand scale in order to be classified as universalizing? James doesn't say so, but he implies so, right? So I don't know. I just, mm. I, it kind of depends on how you think about it. But like I said, a lot of people have kind of come out and said, like a lot of later theorists have, have said, stage six isn't really a stage. Like that's, that doesn't make sense. So it is or it's not. I don't know. <laughs> I know also in the past they've said, you. I mean... The way you presented it is it seemed these were kind of progressive, but mm -hmm. they shouldn't always be viewed that way, I've mm -hmm. heard. Yeah. So you can you can uh, kind of advance through the stages of faith, and uh, almost never empirically do people skip stages, uh, but people do sometimes regress back to previous stages. So, like, uh, let's talk about somebody who, say, an LDS person, they start studying church history, mm -hmm. so they move from stage three to stage four. Yep. Yep. Now we throw it all out with the bathwater because mm -hmm. Joseph Smith was mm -hmm. a horrible person, yep. and now I become anti-Mormon. Mm -hmm. um, in some and ways, then I, could, I regress back to stage three. In some ways, all you've done is you've said, "I'm going to synthetically, conventionally adopt the the typical beliefs of the scientific community in my country, right?" And I, and if you're not really critically thinking about the science also, and not like subjecting that to the same scrutiny that you subject your religion to, then you're really kind of adopting a stage three synthetic conventional faith, but not about religion. It's about the dogma of science, right? Okay. So in some ways, you would regress backwards. Um, uh, sometimes people would do the same thing. They would start to study church history and have difficult challenges. They might put these issues on a shelf, not think about it, and then kind of regress back to a stage three as well, but stay active in their church, right? Okay. Um, but usually, if you're going to continue to wrestle with these challenges, uh, then you're not, like, like, people who people who continue to wrestle, people who try to reconcile these kinds of things, try to come up with answers to them, usually don't fall back into stage three. You can, I mean, it happens, but I'm saying like, if you keep pushing forward, then... So how do you decide somebody's in a stage five? What, what would be the characteristics of a stage five? Sometimes you can't tell from the outside. Sometimes, so how you would know yourself, if you were in stage five, is you would have said like, I, you know, 
I dealt with all the issues. I studied I history about polygamy, Mountain Meadows. Meadows, blacks in the priesthood, uh, interracial marriage, um, blood atonement. Um, you know, I've, I have my own beliefs, my own idiosyncratic yep, I, beliefs. Literal, literal historicity of the Book of Mormon. I, yeah, I have idiosyncratic beliefs. I have reconciled these things in ways that are not conventional to my institution. My institution uh, tells me that this is the way I should believe. I like I'm loyal to the institution, but I'm not like I don't believe all these tenets that have been outlined for me necessarily. Okay, I've kind of come up with my own ways of performing mental gymnastics, of answering answering questions uh, for myself or you know within a temple recommended interview. Like you know I, I'm posed with you know the question something like you know do you believe in the restoration of the gospel through Joseph Smith or something like that? And well. I mean, <laughs> What does that mean to me? You know, I'm going to reinterpret the question in my own way so that I can answer yes. And I'm going to say, well, you know, maybe a restoration means, uh, a, a, you know, a bringing a fresh something new. And maybe it doesn't mean bringing back the exact original thing Christ did, because there's a lot of evidence to suggest that what Christ really did was not exactly the same thing that Joseph restored, right? So maybe I'm, maybe I'm redefining restoration in a way that still feels true, but also isn't the way that I think the, the writers of the question meant it, right? So, um, so, you know, you answer questions for yourself and you answer questions for the institution in ways that are maybe feel a little bit like mental gymnastics. Um, um, you, uh, you've wrestled with all the hard things, but you've made your peace. You have, you, you for most things, or you, you haven't put them on a shelf. With ambigu ambiguity. Yeah, so, um, yeah, so there are certain, there are definitely going to be certain things where, uh, where you don't have answers, where you do have a few issues on the shelf, and you're okay with, you're okay with no answers. But most of the issues you're going to you're going to have wrestled with the issues, and you're going to say like this is this is the story that I believe, and I might not be right. I'm going to be tentative about it, and I'm going to say, if I die and I you know land in heaven, and God says actually the Book of Mormon was literal, then I can say you know I'm fine with that. Like that, that's okay. If I don't believe that in this moment right now, it's also okay, right? Mm -hmm. um, it just all took place on the Malay Peninsula. Yeah. <laughs> right? That's that's a reconciliation. That's, that, that is to wrestle with the hard issue and come out with an answer. <laughs> that's not my answer, but <laughs> um, yeah, so I I, I uh, that's you know that's that's stage five where you come out where you've wrestled with the hard things, most things are no longer on a shelf because you've kind of come up with an explanation that makes sense to you and uh, and from the outside, if I go to a church on a particular Sunday, if I'm if I'm of stage five faith, and I go to church, people might not know I'm stage five. I might look just like a stage three because I might sit and quietly nod and not say anything. But in my head, I might be thinking, I don't agree with that, and I you know I believe something different instead. And you know, but I'm okay. I'm happy to. Or you could also and... be outside the church and do the same sort of a thing, right? Yes. You yes, don't of go course. to church anymore. Yes. Yes. But, of course. But you know, you're very spiritual, and you. Yes. You yes, may so... still give a father's blessing or whatever. Yeah. So, so other so sage five people who yeah oh interesting yeah to kind of there are some people who have left the church but also kind of still feel like they have, you know have sanction from God to administer in their family so they might still perform the sacrament or blessings or things like that but you know after after they've left the church um but there are also people who you know i'm trying to think like if you um like for okay so a lot of what we talked about today was scientific explanations of spiritual phenomena right mm -hmm. um if you've wrestled with the hard questions and the answer that you come to is 
all of the religions in the world are just they just occur because there's like brain regions that predispose us toward religion. There's reasons why we all should be religious for the benefit of society. And we have these spiritual experiences, but really they're rooted in unconscious parts of the brain that kind of manifest in motor movements and, you know, thoughts that feel like they're not ours, but they really are ours. Um, if those are the explanations that you adopt, you've, you've wrestled with the hard issues and you've reconciled your science and faith, but you've just said there is no role for faith. It's all, it's all hook, you know, it's all hokum. Uh, and you know science science is all there is but it's not i haven't just believed the dogma of science it's that i wrestled with the hard issues and i arrived at a place of peace where i i'm satisfied with the answer that there is a scientific rational naturalistic explanation for all of these spiritual phenomena right so that could also be stage five so you could also be a stage three atheist or a stage five atheist yes exactly yeah it depends on how how hard you've wrestled and how much you've you know. Made, we probably don't things. like the stage three atheists, but we don't mind the stage five atheists. Yeah, right? because usually stage five atheists are also going to make space for other people in the world to have different. They're going to be a lot more pluralistic, a lot more open to different perspectives. They're going to have seen because of their own wrestling. They're going to see why other people will disagree with them, and they're going to make place for that. Right. So often it's a much more mature perspective. It allows a lot more room for disagreement without contention, right? Okay. So I think societies are better when they have more people in stage five faith, but the difficulty is you ha people have to go through stage four first, and stage four is difficult. It's difficult, and it's, 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 a, it's a wrestle. It's And so no church, no, no Buddhist church, Hindu, Islam, no church really supports stage four. Is that true? <laughs> so this is so this is what I was saying about like the Unitarians and maybe even the Community of Christ. Okay. Um, where like what you see in a typical congregation might be a lot more uh, embracing of the hard questions and you know reconciling science and faith. And but that'll like be that. congregation by congregation, it not will. from an well, institutional yeah, perspective. Well, yeah. Though Unitarians, I mean Unitarians, kind of like. I mean, they, they differ by congregation, but almost every uni Unitarian Universalist church you go to is going to have that same kind of feel to it, where you go in and people are really honestly wrestling with the hard issues. And, you know, you have coffee hour after church and everybody kind of sits around and just talks about existential stuff. You know, they're really wrestling. But here, this is the funny thing. If your whole church is designed to get people to wrestle but never actually arrive in stage five then stage four becomes stage three. I know this sounds so bizarre, but like within the Unitarian Church, the synthetic conventionalism, in other words, to adopt what everybody else kind of already believes, is just a wrestling attitude, right? So if you go to the Universalist faith, if you're raised, for instance, from birth in the Universal in, in, a, in the Unitarian Church, then you're gonna you're gonna spend your whole life around people who just question, 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 and never really come to any resolutions or answers. And if that's the whole point of your church, then if that's all you do, then you're really actually in stage three, even though it looks like stage four, because all you're doing is just adopting the same conventions of the people around you. Oh, right? that's interesting. Does that, does that make sense, though? Yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. it's kind of weird, but it, and it doesn't happen very often where stage four becomes stage three. But in the Unitarians, if you don't push past stage four, if you don't help your congregants kind of arrive at a place of reconciling and not just wrestling, but also like coming to peace about issues, then really you're just helping people stay in a, a different version of stage three, which is just, you know, like just to question everything. Just question everything, you know? <laughs> Noble without a cause. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Oh, well, this is interesting. Yeah. 
All right, well, is there anything we've missed? Oh, there was, okay, so we, we talked a lot about, like, the spiritual explanations of, of naturalistic phenomena, and I just want to say, like, there are ways that, uh, that you can kind of tap into this, right? Like, there are, um, uh, like, okay, C.S. Lewis wrote this paper called, um, uh, Transposition. It's an essay within a book. I can't remember the name of the book, but th this one essay was really powerful to me. He kind of says, like, God can only communicate with us in the natural senses that we have. So we have five basic senses, and, mm, kind of more than that, because we also have emotions that kind of vary, and they're visceral and things like that. But basically we have these senses, these physical organs in our body, and if God wants to talk to us, the only thing he can do is he can say, like, he, he can make us see certain things or hear certain things, right? These might feel like hallucinations to somebody on the outside, but, you know, if he actually makes you see a vision or hear an auditory voice, then he may have caused your auditory nerve to vibrate, your eardrum to vibrate, or he may have, you know, like put photons in your eye to make you see a vision, right? Like, these, these things could actually happen. But most of the time, he seems to speak with us through emotion, right? We feel, we feel right or wrong, we feel good or bad, we feel a sense of certainty or knowledge. Um, and so the, the problem with the fact that he speaks with, a, with us through these emotions is, uh, like, how do you know if it's just an emotion or if it's a godly emotion, right? If it's a God-given emotion or if it's an emotion you would just normally have anyway, right? And so um, you've got like, you know, uh, like Cry Night at Bible Camp or, you know, Thursday Night at EF EFY where people are um, uh, kind of given circumstances that manipulate their emotions into feeling something that, that kind of allows them to have a spiritual experience. So you might, uh, you might for instance, like, um, uh, you know, you spend a whole week with like the other kids there in your, in your group and then you've got really close to them and so you like that afternoon you have, you know, like the whole day, EFY, Thursday, you spend the whole day in church clothes, you hear a lot of really powerful, novel, speculative theology kind of talks that are really inspirational by really powerful CES speakers. And then you have like a private devotional with the lights low and everybody's calm. And then you have an opportunity for people to share their emotions uh, and, you know, the experiences they've had during the week. And, uh, and, you know, all these, oh, when you have like this part of the devotional is like really moving music uh, that you sing together. And this kind of, the reason why we sing hymns in congregations anyways, because the music is very moving. It taps into these emotions, right? So all these things kind of cluster together to evoke a particular emotion that not everybody has. Most people end up having, but when people don't have the kind of worry, like, what's wrong with me? Why didn't I have a spiritual experience this night? But some people might be having, not because it's spiritual, but because it's just an emotion. Right? We might have just tapped into emotional experiences and kind of tricked people into thinking it was the spirit when it really wasn't. And we might do this in other kinds of venues as well. Like, you know, whenever the church comes out with a new video that's trying to, like, convince, you know, it's, it's trying to, like, be inspirational and, you know, help me live more righteously. I, like, I struggle a little bit with it because I can hear the violin music in the background, and I hear, you know, I see the climax of the storyline build up to this moment of, you know, drama, and I, and I just feel like, 
how much of this is my emotion and how much of this is really God trying to like inspire me? And I can't, and it's so hard to tell which once you know that God is mostly communicating with people through these natural mechanisms, but also you can tap into those natural mechanisms if you just watch a, you know, a rom-com, you know, then, uh, you know, how much is, how much is really God inspiring me and how much is really just natural emotion, right? And so, um, uh, there's other facets of ch our church experience that kind of tap into these emotions, right? For a long time, the Catholic Church has known that if you build grand, huge cathedrals with tall ceilings and really interesting architecture and shapes and stuff, that it's awe-inspiring. And the feeling of awe is a very reverential feeling. It makes you feel like, and the Catholic Church isn't trying necessarily to like manipulate people into having spiritual experiences, but they are trying to evoke the concept of God being grander and greater than you can possibly imagine. So you build this cathedral that's like a symbol of God. This cathedral is greater and grander than you could possibly imagine. So is God. God, right? And so this feeling of awe that you have for the cathedral is really the same feeling you should have towards God, right? Mm. Um, well, you have the same kinds of feelings in the temple when you go and it's this pristine, silent, white environment, right? And it, 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 it's, it, it uh, gives you a visceral experience in your auditory nerves, silence, right? And especially if you are traditional morning with a lot of kids at home and it's loud and crazy a lot of time, right? And you go to the temple and it's very quiet and you go and you get dressed in these very quiet or these very, these very clean, pristine clothes. Um, and everything around you is luxurious crystals and, and, you know, just clean and, um, you know, soft fabrics and every, everything just seems so grand and nice. Right. Um, uh, and so it's tapping into these senses of, you know, these, these emotions, these, these physical senses that cause you to feel certain emotions. And how much of a spiritual experience you have seems perhaps in part to be dependent on tapping into those emotions, right? It's like people often have spiritual experiences in the temple. But how much of it is because God's there and how much of it is because there's no kids there, you know? <laughs> and I can't tell. I don't think anybody can tell. Is it wrong to tap into those emotions? I don't know. I don't think so. If that allows you, if that actually does allow you to like have a greater connection with God, then maybe it's fine to like, to, to like co-opt that natural mechanism, you know, and kind of like, like trick your body into having a spiritual I mean, because it reminds me of the mega churches where they're like using the music to, because mm -hmm. I know a Mormon, if we go to a mega church, yeah. we're going to be like, they're just manipulating you. Uh -huh. But, but, so it's easy to see it in the other guy, but it's yes. hard to see it in yes. yourself, right? Yes. And we see that actually the power of these kinds of mechanisms, like when we sing hymns, like every hymn in the hymn book, you know, every single one of them has a word at the top. You should sing this prayerfully, gently, reverently, fervently, you know? Every single song is right. a, a particular attitude it's trying to evoke in you. It's trying to manipulate your emotions, literally. And it's not, again, I don't think it's a bad thing, but it's trying to tap in to give you a kind of differential spiritual experience from one song to the next that kind of, yes yeah. that kind of helps you feel something more than you would without the music right but the more often we tap into these same senses outside of church contexts the less power they have in church contexts so back in the 1600s who had grand edifices but the catholics not one person, right? Nowhere. Nowhere else were the grand emphasis, the king, the palace, right? That's it, right? But today, the Traverse Mall, the Traverse Outlets Mall at the, like the, the Lehigh. Lehigh, you know, right, right there in, you know, yeah, outside of uh, Thanksgiving Point. Um, like, I went in the bathrooms when they first opened. Those bathrooms were the grandest room I'd been in in years. Like, marble everywhere, like, like, 
grand, glorious, pristine fixtures. I, I don't think I've ever seen a bathroom so beautiful in my life. Not in the temples, certainly. Nowhere. <laughs> right? Like, it doesn't matter how hard you try, you'll never Hotel. top those bathrooms. Right? Okay. Um, so, the fact of the matter is, the more... So, you go to a cruise ship, you see the same thing. Everything's done up pristine, right? If you use these same kinds of tactics to manipulate in a lot of people today you know the architecture of the typical american household is just more grand and more beautiful more done up more clean than it's ever been you know people are wealthier today than they have been in the past and so you go to the albertsons i remember i was 17 years old when i first went into a remodeled albertsons and the floor in the produce section was done with like hardwood and i looked up at the signs and everything was like artisan and beautiful and i'm like it feels like being in this glorious place. It's a freaking Albertsons, right? But the more you tap into these emotions everywhere you go, and every business is trying to make you feel that same sense of awe and inspiration and wealth, like spend all you can here because this is a wealthy place and you're wealthy too, right? If you try to tap in those emotions outside of a religious context, then you're diluting the effect within a religious context. So you go to the temple today, and yeah, it's beautiful and grand, but is it more grand than the mall? Is it more grand than the, you know, funeral home down the street with a also water fountain and marble and, you know? It's like the more wealthy we become, the less those those things have an effect. The more we sing, the more we listen to music that makes us feel various emotions all the time, the less power hymns have in church, right? So all these kinds of things kind of get watered down over time, and you can kind of see, like people become less less susceptible so like when people cry uh, like it's cultural in the, in the Mormon church to cry like in testimony meeting for instance right or often when you're bearing a testimony even mm -hmm. after the end of a talk or something like people often cry scientific research has suggested that the reason why we cry is because uh, our like we, we have a range of emotions that our body likes to experience and if it gets too much outside of that, on the positive end or on the negative end, it tries to evoke some response that's going to bring you back down towards the middle, okay? Because it can't handle, like your body can't handle too much of good or too much of bad, okay? So like, if you're in a very awkward situation, incredibly painful, so awkward, you laugh, right? Laughing is the opposite of what you would expect to happen in that situation, but laughter brings you up towards the middle, something out of that negative state, more towards something more positive, right? Crying is not what you would expect to happen. Crying is a sad emotion. You would not expect it to happen in a happy moment, right? But if you experience something that's so powerful, so beautiful, that it is outside of your body's capability of handling, you cry to bring you back down to something more reasonable, right? So you, so Mormons cry because when they're crying, well, first of all, they cry because it's expected, but also they cry because when they're experiencing that cry, it's because what they're feeling inside is so much more powerful and transcendent beyond what their body is capable of handling and beyond what their current framework of understanding can wrap, wrap, wrap their minds around, that their body has to cope with it, and they cope by crying, okay? So there's empirical research that we've like, evaluated this to, to demonstrate that that is not just a theory that's that that really happens huh. like, that like yeah anyway i so. thought it was just the fear of public speaking that's why <laughs> well some people probably do but um yeah so um so but here's the thing like when i was a teen i had a lot more spiritual experiences than i have now a lot more and i cried a lot more and it was i mean it was almost a weekly thing for me i mean i was 
people used to call me in seminary, they would say, oh, Prophet Jess, you know, because they ever thought I was going to be a general authority someday, you know. I, I was so sensitive to the Spirit, and so, like, I had all these spiritual experiences. And once I went on a mission, I came home, like, kind of stopped. Not entirely, but I didn't feel like a radically different person. I didn't feel like I was worse, like I was wicked, you know. I, I didn't understand why did the heavens close, you know. And as I've come to understand the reason for these dramatic spiritual experiences in my youth, the reason I would feel certain ways was because it was outside my capacity to understand. Like, my current framework of the world was this small, and when some, when, when I would sit with the other priesthood brethren and stand and sing uh, praise to the man, the, the chorus of all these voices resounding together was so beautiful. It was outside my current framework of understanding. I have since experienced that. It no longer makes me cry, because after the first time, it doesn't hold the same power. You can only experience that the first time once. So the first time that happened in a priesthood meeting, I'm like 12 years old, it's like, oh my goodness, right? The most amazing spiritual experience. The first time I went through the temple, and this is opposite from what some people experience where it's really awkward, I was in tears. I was bawling. I went in the celestial room, and my whole family was there, and this room is so grand and so beautiful, and I was raised in a pretty, you know, low-collar, blue-collar, you know, low, low-class low background. It was the most beautiful building I'd ever been in, and it was so grand and so glorious. It was so transcendent. But once I've been there, you can't experience that first time twice, you know? So... Once it's within your framework of understanding, once you've kind of familiarized with that kind of experience, you're not going to feel that again. So the older you get, the less likely your heart are to have those grand experiences of like this moving emotion that just blows you over. You might have that in your teens, and then it kind of dissipates as your worldview expands and you understand why these things are happening, and as you begin to understand more like you know, like as you've experienced more and more things about about the world. So I think a lot of people have that where their spiritual experiences kind of taper off throughout their life. And as I've made sense of that, it's been helpful for me to realize it's not wickedness on my part. It's not because I'm doing something wrong. It's because my worldview has expanded to a point where my body doesn't need to cry in order to bring it down out of this space anymore because this space is normal for me now, right? Hmm. Like this high emotion is something my body can handle, you know? So wow. I, I find that I, I I have found that that interpretation is really helpful for me. Yeah. Well, I would just I, like I just want to uh, kind of end by saying like I read at one point. So I, I've talked a lot today about different spiritual experiences, different ways that people can kind of make sense scientifically of these these spiritual experiences that we might have, and different ways of understanding you know faith movements and denominational schism and all these kinds of things. And after having finished a PhD in psychology, like. Like well, even during the whole course of that ten-year study, like bachelor's, master's, PhD, like that whole ten years was rough for me. I was stage four the whole time, like wrestling and struggling and trying to figure out: Do I believe this? And what do I believe? How do I reconcile this science and faith? And like my answer finally came when I read the book, The Life of Pi. And I don't know if you've read that book. You've I've seen, seen the, the movie. movie. Okay, the it's movie's really awesome. Good. Yeah. It's a fantastic book too. It's it's. Oh, good. It's yeah. so moving. It's, even if you've seen the movie, it's worth reading the book. Huh. Um, but at the very end of this book, so, you, so if, you, if you're not familiar with the story, or even if you are, it, 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 you know, this, this, this character, Pi, he um, is in a shipwreck, and his family has, like, a bunch of zoo animals 
that they were moving from India to another country uh, that were on the ship with them. Well, somehow the animals get out during the shipwreck and Pi survives in a lifeboat. He, he's apparently the only survivor with a bunch of animals, like a, uh, you know, a, an orangutan and a tiger and a, um, and a hyena and things like that. So he's in this lifeboat and he's like, holy crap, like what, how am I supposed to live, you know? So he starts setting boundaries around the animals and he's trying to like, you know, not let the animals eat each other and, you know, all these things happen where, you know, the hyena like bites off the leg of the, you know, of the orangutan or something, you know, the tiger comes out and eats the hyena. It's just this really graphic, horrifying display. And eventually he's left alone with this Bengal tiger in this boat, right? Huge it's just tiger. Huge tiger. Unbelievable. Yeah. And this tiny little dinghy. And, you know, he's just like trying to find a way of cohabiting with this, with this Bengal tiger as they float aimlessly across the ocean, right? And, uh, some of the things that are described are so beautiful. And as you watch the movie, it's visually stunning. You know, there's this island that seems... It's so ethereal, it's unbelievable, right? Because there's, like... Uh, there's meerkats all over the island and it just happens to be like food for the tiger and food for the kid and you know they live on this island for a few days there's fresh water for the first time in ages and uh, and you know they he, he sleeps on this island for a few days and then it seems like he finds evidence that maybe somebody else has lived on the island and the only thing left is a is a human tooth right the island ate the person right they just disintegrated and so like you hear the story, you know, he's, this kid's telling this story and it seems unbelievable. Eventually he lands on the coast of Mexico and the authorities from the shipping company come and chat with him. They ask him to tell the story and he, he relays the whole thing to them, right? He, he tells them, you know, this whole animal thing happened and it was unbelievable. And I land on this island and it was just, you know, like, it's just so bizarre. It's an unbelievable story. A truly unbelievable. You can't, like, like, within your current framework of understanding the world, it doesn't make sense. Right. Like, it just seems truly almost unbelievable, right? And so they say to him, like, we need a story we can put in a report. This is not, like, this is not believable. And so he tells them this other story that's, that, where the animals were actually people, and they did barbaric, awful things to each other, right? They ate each other, they engaged in cannibalism, and they murdered each other, right? And so these, like, and, and in this second story, you, you come to see that Pai has kind of reinterpreted all this barbarism in light of his, you know, in, in kind of psychological protective terms, make them animals so that he can kind of protect himself from the trauma of this event, right? And so he tells this story where the same things happen, but it's more naturalistic, more believable, but also so disgusting you don't want to believe it, right? And he, and he says... So it goes with God. And when I read that in the book, I was like, well, that makes no sense. And I had to go read an interview with the author to figure out what he was talking about. But when I did, it was like, oh my gosh, so impactful. He said, we are all each given a story about the nature of this world that is either so transcendent and glorious to be almost unbelievable or so meaningless and base, barbaric, as to be so gross you don't want to believe it. Okay, so you could kind of say, like, God is real and loves us all, and we will eventually all be saved with him. We, we are destined for greatness, and we will become like him. That's a beautiful story, almost so grand that you can't believe it. Or you've got this version of the story that's like, we just evolved randomly here, and when you die, you're gone, and that's, it's completely pointless, and you should probably just live it up now, because, like, maximizing your own personal, like, hedonic pleasure is the best thing you can do, right, to, to, to get through this life happily. That's so base and meaningless to be, like, something you don't want to believe. And you're given a choice. 
just as Pi sat there telling these two these two shipping company officials these two stories, like they didn't know which one to believe. They had no proof either way, right? The tiger had run into the woods, the dinghy was there, and Pi was the only thing found. There's no proof, no evidence of anything that had happened on that journey. They had Pi's word alone, and he told two potential stories, and they got to choose which one to believe. When I heard that, I was like, oh my gosh, like, I will never know if these scientific explanations that I've studied my whole life are real, or if they're, or if spiritualism is real, right? I will never have the answer. No matter how long I study, no matter how hard I wrestle, I will never have the answer. Today, I kind of think, probably there's some of both, right? Like, there's some, there's some naturalistic stuff going on, there's some spiritual stuff going on. But if I believe in God, if I believe, if I believe this story, if I give my loyalty to the Mormon Church, if I live in this way, you know, I look at Messiah 3.19, and he says, uh, or maybe it's 2.17, I can't remember, <laughs> surely I can't remember, but he says, like, consider on the blessed and happy state of those that keep the commandments of God. It goes on and says more, but consider it, consider the blessed and happy state that they have. If I choose to believe my life is better, I'm happier, my marriage is better, my life feels more meaningful, I feel more peace if I choose to believe this story that's almost unbelievable. Even in the face of contradictory evidence, even in the face of all these psychological theories that say, probably nothing is going on here. Probably this is all fake. There's right? no free will. Yeah, exactly. There's no free will, and you all are just convincing yourselves of fake stuff that's going on in the unconscious parts of your brain, and all the things that you think are spiritual are actually just naturalistic, you know, just random firings. Like, th that's a potential explanation. But the other, other explanation is, there's actually a God there, and he... And he actually really cares about me. He really loves me. And, um, and I can be like him. Like, if I believe that, I'm happier. It's really touching. It's really, it's transcendent. And so, when I read that book, I decided, I choose to believe. Like, I will believe. And, like, so I still study all this stuff. I still enjoy it. I enjoy it for the intellectualism of it. But, uh, but I'll never have the right answer. I'll never know for sure until I die and find out. You know, I either won't find out that, you know, there was no God, <laughs> or I will find out there was a God. And, uh, and I just hope, you know, I hope for the best. And, I, and I'm going to live my life as if there is, you know, because I think that it's a better life if you do. So. Wow, that's fantastic way to end. Appreciate you. That's awesome. Yeah. All right, well, Dr. Jesse James... <laughs> Thank you so much for letting me stay at your house here in yeah, Laguna, yeah, Iowa. Yeah, yeah, it's really great. It's awesome. Yeah. Happy and, to have uh, you here. Thanks for making a, the trip. Yes, it was a lot of fun, and uh, look forward to talking with you more in the future. Sounds great. Thanks. Yep, take care. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Dr. Jesse James. Jesse, thank you so much for your hospitality in Lamona, Iowa. It was so fun to get to know you, and, uh, and plus you had some amazing insights in psychology, so I really appreciate that. In our next conversation, I'm excited to have uh, an old-timer and a new-timer on the show, um, Dr. Newell Bringhurst and Craig Foster. We're going to talk a little bit about polygamy. Yeah, I, I, I was just going to say that uh, we, we had originally intended only doing one volume when we started out on this project back in, uh, in, in 2007 is when the genesis of this uh, project came about. And we quickly found uh, that wasn't going to be adequate to do it all 
in one volume. I, I might further add that in in uh, each volume kind of has its own distinctive characteristics in terms of the way that we structured it. If you like what we're doing at Gospel Tangents, please support us. Go to gospeltangents.com and you can get full interviews as well as transcripts if you'd like those. So click here to subscribe and over here you can see some of our other great videos. Thanks again.